Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile application development shop based in Baltimore, Maryland. This season, season three, we are talking about working with Elixir, and today we are talking specifically about functional programming with one of our favorite recurring guests, Brooklyn Zelenka. Brooklyn, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? Doing lovely. Brooklyn, we're having a little bit of a different episode today. Why aren't we talking about Elixir? So I used to do a lot of Elixir. You know, I've written libraries. I used to do professionally. I used to teach Elixir as well. But my current company uses Haskell instead. So I've been primarily doing Haskell for about two years now. And if listeners of the show remember, we've had you on now in the first and second season of uh, Elixir Wizards, formerly known as Smart Software. And in both of those episodes, we talked a lot about Elixir and a lot about functional programming. And it came up that we could have a whole nother discussion really just on functional programming. And I think some other topics came up as potential topics of conversation. So we've got quite a lot to get through today. Eric, I'll let you just jump right into some of these functional programming questions. Sure. So I guess uh, what we can start with is what does functional programming mean to you since you're doing more than just Elixir? So this is a question that I get a lot, especially from people coming from the the object-oriented world. What is FP? Why should I care about it? And to me, the, the two big reasons are I want code that I can reason about, which is to say look at and know that what it does and that it's bug free and code that composes. So code that can reuse in many different places and not have to rewrite the same kind of thing over and over again. So there's two things that you mentioned here. One is code that you're reasoning about and code that you can reuse. I want to focus on the reasoning part because people say that a lot, but I I think it might not be immediately clear upon hearing why functional programming is easier to reason about, like why it reduces cognitive load. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So functions really give you two things, right? They give you abstraction and application. So you can take a concept, abstract it away, give it a name, and then you can add arguments to it, including other functions to make it more specific, the thing it's going to do. It means you have essentially unbounded abstraction. So you can start talking about very complex things in very compact, simple ways. So instead of having to write a loop every time, we can take that pattern and call it reduce or even more specifically a map. And now we know that when I run this thing, there's not a huge number of things that can happen. It's really just going to take whatever data structure I have and apply some function to every element in it. I'll get back the same order and the same structure if it's a tree, let's say. We can start working at things at a more semantic, more human level rather than just for the machine. And maybe it would help to compare that to some other programming paradigms that are not as easy to reason about. Yes. So it's possible to mix them, right? They're, they're actually, they're not fully in opposition. It's a little bit awkward to do object-oriented plus functional programming. It can be done, right? I guess the real distinction is imperative versus functional. In imperative programming, you're more concerned about how the machine is going to execute the exact instructions and kind of the sequence of events that are going to happen. So this is very mechanistic way of thinking. And you can get abstraction, you know, especially with object orientation, where you can start giving names to things. But these names are really scoped. You're trying to hide information encapsulation. So you're trying to hide as many details as possible rather than saying, this is the kind of data we're working on and these are the transformations we're doing to them. We're instead saying, well, here's just some messages that we're passing around 
and hopefully those do the right thing. In some ways, you can think of functional programming as being data-oriented as opposed to object-oriented. And if somebody was totally naive, what is imperative programming? Imperative programming is languages like, say, C is a, a really classic one, where you're saying, here's a sequence of instructions for the computer to execute, right? In a language that's as low level as C, it's, you know, create a space in memory that I'm going to start putting things in. Does that kind of just mean that there are like no rules in imperative programming? Like, is it just sort of delivering whatever instructions come to mind? Yeah. So it, again, it depends on how much constraint is, is built into the language. But on the extreme, because you know this is all a spectrum, right? On the extreme, it's really, there are no rules. There's just instructions. You can mix and match them in any order. At the far, far end of this, when you start getting very low level, you can start saying, you know, jump around in the program to this line in the program even, which makes it very hard to reason about what your program is going to do because, it, you know, you could jump from there to literally anywhere, uh, even outside of your program and have a crash. So you get a lot of freedom because you can mix and match things and do very tricky things with it. But it's a total just sort of, you know, here's your set of things you're allowed to do, go wild. Yeah. So it's, it's less less structured. Right. And functional programming is more structured. It gives you more rules about how to organize your code. Exactly. And it, again, it's not to say that you can't have a more structured imperative language like Rust let's say, where they do a lot of things, especially with the type system, to add more structure and adding functions as well and, and naming things well so that you have a little bit more constraint. But uh, yeah, that's the general, again, it's a continuum, right? Where you have from one side to the other. So when you were first learning functional programming, what, like, what were some of the biggest hurdles that you were coming across? And maybe what was one of the early like aha light bulb moments that you had? Yeah, so I, I have a bit of a different background from most people in that I was doing functional programming from almost day one without getting to the whole background of like why or you know how I ended up as a developer. But I, I had a bit of background with some mathematics from music theory primarily and ended up at a shop that had a couple of functional programmer advocates in it. And was picking up, you know, so started with JavaScript and started picking up things like Clojure and Haskell, you know, within six months of starting to program. And I found it really sort of connected with the way that I tended to think about things. So I'm, I'm a bit of a strange case there. Not to say that I haven't worked in imperative languages, absolutely have, but uh, I've always found functional programming to be a nice match for my brain. That said, because I've taught a lot of functional programming, Haskell, Clojure, Racket, etc. Uh, over the years. And I have noticed that there are some things that a lot of people get, get stuck on, and especially more experienced developers. So somebody has you know, a really rock-solid basis in Ruby, and they're a very you know, senior Rubyist. They're trying to fit everything into, how does the class work? Well, there isn't a class. You just have functions. Well, how is that even going to work, right? You know, People coming straight out of, say, a coding bootcamp often have an easier time learning these things because they don't have to unlearn ways of thinking. So Elixir in particular, people would frequently get caught by, like, it kind of looks sort of like Ruby. Like, okay, great, but like now I'm going to make this a class. No, like that's not how this works. Okay, well, then we'll use behaviors like classes. Not really how that works, right? So realizing that it is this inversion where the data is the important thing and you're piping it through a series of transformations rather than trying to always encapsulate and hide away state and that we don't have, you know, just 
totally immutable or sorry, totally immutable objects, you know, floating around. It's yeah, you can do that, but you have to be explicit that that's what you're doing. Those really catch people, even just some of the extra patterns that we get, or even some of the, the more power, like, you know, sure, you can just spin that off into a task. It's like, well, then how, what do I do with the thread? You don't, you don't worry about it. It's just taken care of for you. So th things like that, I've found mostly get, get people tripped up, except for languages that, for example, have a, a type system when they're not used to doing a type system. And that's an entirely different conversation. So. Which we will get to. I want to talk a little bit more about some of your experience with a variety of functional programming languages. You're working in Haskell now, you've used Elixir. Can you talk about the different functional programming languages that you've used, what you like about them, and why you might choose to use one of these languages over another? Mm, yeah. So I like programming languages sort of in general, and I play with them in my free time, plus have used a bunch in, in production. And functional programming is primarily a style, but there are some languages that are more tuned to it than others. So you can absolutely do functional programming in Python, right? Like totally doable, becoming very common in JavaScript. But the languages that are really sort of aimed at it, obviously Haskell, which is the one that I'm working in these days, which is really aimed at making sure that the code does what it says it does and doesn't isn't going to have runtime errors or as few as possible so that the code will compile and then then you know things ahead of time elixir and erlang which are again it's the language and then the ecosystem right so it has an ecosystem that's very aimed at concurrency and distributed systems and especially elixir at user friendliness which you don't really see a lot in functional programming in general, right, to some degree, but especially Elixir, very focused on making things very friendly and nice. Elm, front-end language, becoming popular actually with, with Elixir people because it also has pipes, but it's a Haskell derivative. So it has a type system. It kind of looks like Haskell, but it also comes with a an architecture similar to Redux, right? I'd say it's probably the opposite way around. Redux took it from Elm. I've worked in Clojure, which is a Lisp language, so lots of parentheses on the Java virtual machine. Could I stop you at Clojure yeah. for a moment? Because sure. we recently, and we're going to talk more about Chris later in the episode, but we recently had Chris Keithley on the show, and he talked about Clojure. I, I think his exact words, or, or it was something along the lines of Clojure is like the most perfectly designed language of all languages ever. Or at least, and I'm probably misrepresenting a little bit what he was saying, but I think it was very, very close to that. And I'm curious what your response or opinion of Clojure in light of that comment is. Yeah, so I think Clojure is very nice. It has it definitely has trade-offs, especially being on the JVM. So the last time I used it was maybe like in, in a serious way. It was maybe three, four years ago. And it doesn't have some of the niceties you'd expect in some other functional languages, right? So you don't have, uh, you have to make a distinction when you're going to be doing something iterative, right? For example, so you actually have to mark things in your code, whereas a lot of other functional languages can just look at the structure and say, oh, okay, I can optimize away this. This is just an inner loop. No big deal. But the tooling is quite nice. They've put a lot of effort into documentation. There's some very nice learning resources, and it's very flexible. So Lisps, Clojure included, are extensible in the same way that Elixir is, actually. And it has a lot of power just by virtue of being on the, on the JVM. So you can use the entire Java ecosystem, which is enormous. So it's definitely a nice language. Oh, yeah. And then 
with some of the extensions too, people have written other languages on top of Clojure or I guess DSLs on top of it as well. So it, it has a philosophy and a way of being very pragmatic of working. Most perfect language, uh, I, I would have to, to listen to the podcast to, to really comment on, on that part, but I think every language comes with, with trade-offs, right? And every language has, has a place, right? You know, a lot of people like to, to hate on PHP, but it also makes a ton of money. So, you know, it, it really depends on what your goals are. Yeah, so does Java. <laughs> if you could only use one programming language for the rest of your life and, and impose the same programming language on everybody else, oh, geez. like everybody else and you could only use one programming language for the rest of eternity, which one would you pick? In that case, I would probably have to pick, probably, probably it would be Racket. It's very extensible. You can write other languages in it. Wait, wait say that again? Racket. Which one? Racket. Racket? Racket. This is totally out of left field. Why? Because it's extensible. I'm sorry, go on. Go on. Yeah, it's it's completely extensible. Somebody's written a language in it called Hackett, which is Haskell plus Racket. So you can do pretty much whatever you want. So, you know, it's and by extending the language, not by writing in, you know, a VM and an interpreter in it. So you can, can totally extend the language. You can do that in Elixir too, but it's it takes sometimes a little bit of hackery to make it to make it work. And some of the libraries I've written have probably taken that. I, I'm not going to say that I've done that to the most extreme, but like de definitely pretty far far in that direction. So there are some limitations there that say Racket doesn't have. I'm looking at Racket. I've never seen this before. It looks maybe like a Lisp. Yeah. Okay, it is. Okay. It is a Lisp. So yeah. I'm not a complete idiot. Yeah. That's cool. All right. I feel like you kind of dodged the question by just picking a language that you could then extend to kind of look like another language. But that's <laughs> yes. probably the smart way to handle that question, <laughs> which was not a super great. Great. Go ahead, Eric. You've got something coming up here. Yeah, as long as we all we all don't pick COBOL. <laughs> yes. All right. So our, I guess our next set of questions is, you currently do Haskell. Do you do other languages for your current job? And like, if you do have to switch back and forth, do you ever find there's like a weird context switch between functional and maybe say JavaScript that's not functional? Yeah. So we write JavaScript or I guess TypeScript in a very functional way. So the style is similar enough. TypeScript has a slightly different type system with, with different trade-offs, so it's not you know exactly the same, but close enough. Uh, so there's less of a context switch than, than in the way that we're using it than, than could otherwise be. I used to find, you know, a few years ago, switching between languages, like I would, you know, spend the weekend with, I don't know, Erlang, and then go back to my Ruby job. And there would be this sort of like, oh, how do I think about things in this way again? You know, because the language you use does adjust the way you think about problems, right? I've gotten better at context switching between them now and kind of having, you know, a, a better, you know, just in my head being like, oh, I'm in this portion of the design space. So I can kind of, you know, have these trade-offs and that's gotten a lot easier. But yeah, so we, we do some TypeScript. We have some Elm as well, which is again, fairly Haskell-y. So we're, we're definitely in that point in that general direction. When we brought on our first employee, the first week we said, you know, do do a comparison of TypeScript to ReasonML and see if it's, you know, sort of ready for, uh, for production for, for our uses, which it was close. It wasn't quite there at the time. But that was turned out being a really nice intro to like really functional style JavaScript and then Haskell. So the short answer is, yeah, we don't really have as much of a context switch, but that's entirely because we're disciplined in the style we use. 
before I ask this next question, I think that as we wrap up the sort of languages discussion, I want to plug, we recently had on the show, Bruce and Maggie Tate. Bruce is the author of Seven Languages in Seven Weeks, which you seem like you might have read. I have read, yes. And of seven course, more languages, I think as well. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't. I don't think he, I don't know if he plugged that one in the episode or not. Um, I recently actually just got the, you know, he's also this guy behind grox.io and I, I got the passport that they do there. So I'm learning a little bit of pony, which if you want to learn about pony, go and uh, listen to our episode with Bruce and Maggie. But speaking of podcast guests, we mentioned we had Chris Keithley on an episode and we had a lot of discussions. So on this episode, which has done very well. He mentioned that he wrote a Haskell application, his first Haskell application. The first time he ran it, it seg faulted, which I think is never supposed to happen with Haskell. So like, why did this happen? Should he feel betrayed by the type system? Talk a little bit about that and then I'll have a follow up. Would love to to talk about that. So mainly because we bumped into something similar a couple months ago. But so I'll sort of break it down into a few pieces. So the type system itself. Is a Haskell seg fault like a mythical Pokemon? Uh, yeah, essentially, yes, yeah. So the I think the main thing he's referencing there is most people's experience is if it compiles, it runs without errors, right? Which is sort of the point of having the type system. And you can weaken portions of the type system. If you need mutability, you can add it, you know, all of that stuff. But for the most part, you should really just be in you know, a nice safe subset and everything should just work, right? The reason you get this, there's sort of two pieces. It's a pure language. So inside your application, everything is pure, even doing IO. That's kind of handled at the edge of your application and because of types. So when you have these two, you have something called propositions as types, which means your types are literally logic propositions, right? So for the type system to be broken, reality would have to be broken. What ends up happening as you compile, is the types get checked and then erased. And now you're left with an untyped program that then gets turned into C and then linked into libc. And this is where, at least, we ran into a problem. We could run things normally when we tried to create, and everything would work. We tried to create a fully static binary that used libc, and we were getting seg faults in a Haskell program which really sucked. And so I started poking around and people have been running into the same problem in Rust and Go and Elixir with BIFs and you know all, all kinds of things. So, and then sometimes people will update libc and things will work again, right? So the type system unfortunately doesn't solve your dependencies. And there are ways around that with alternates to libc like Moozle, but you know, that's getting a little, a little too deep. So in that case, my guess. Let's get deep because like, I feel like libc comes up a lot as like an issue for a myriad of different applications. Like people just have trouble with this particular dependency. What is it doing? What is Musil as a alternative? Like, let's just dive into this because I feel like it might help me in my job. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So when you're compiling something that's going through C, which is a lot of things, you tend to link in some existing libraries. And libc are those shared libraries, right? So GCC is the compiler, you link in, in in these shared things. So even when you're building a static binary, the question is, which is to say something that all the code is included just right in the executable. The question is, how static is it? Because they assume everybody has libc kicking around. Is it the right libc? We don't know. So we were building you know, a static binary on one person's machine but somebody with an older version of Linux couldn't use it because they had an older version of libc, 
which is not supposed to happen with a static binary. So there's this alternative thing called MUSL, Musl, and the workaround is you stick your build environment in a Docker file that uses that instead of libc, but it's not compatible with libc, so the entire system has to be Musl instead of libc, and it's built specifically for doing embedded systems. So it doesn't assume that you have these libs kicking around. It just compiles everything down into a single binary, which is a pain that you have to do this workaround at all. And libc generally works, and GCC typically is good, but when you run into these sort of edge cases, it can be very frustrating. I'm going to stick with Chris for a minute because he he said something else that I think needs to be addressed. He made the assertion, and, and this is something from ElixirConf 2019. You can go listen to his talk. He made a very bold assertion that for most engineering problems, static typing is unnecessary and a hindrance to development velocity. We got him to double down on that opinion in our podcast with him, so I'm pretty confident I'm getting this one right. We, from our previous conversations, guessed that you would disagree with this can you give us the counterpoint? Why is static typing maybe not a hindrance to most engineering problems? Yeah. So static typing really depends on which type of it. So I agree in the, in the case of, say, Java static, static typing. Just frustrating. Feels like it's getting in the way. When you have algebraic types, so something like what you have in Elixir or Rust, or sorry, not Elixir, Haskell, Rust, or Elm, that can be more helpful. Actually, I mean, Elixir does have a limited type system in Dialyzer, right? So you can put the, you know type specs in. And those can be helpful, and they help to define the interfaces for your functions. There's an entire, you know, have an entire other conversation about just type systems if we really wanted to, right? But And I do want to just get clarification on one term. When you say algebraic types, like what does that mean in, in, in opposition to what? Yes. So you can have just regular, you know, sort of nominal types where you have, say, strings and integers, and that's kind of it, right? You know, you have these very specific things that are available in your language. You might have a class that has an interface on it, and that's kind of the end. And it's very constraining. You can't really do a whole lot with that. And it's, you know, oh, I can't match int64 with int32. It's like, oh, okay, I've got to go and change the, you know, coerce from one to the other. And it's just more of a pain than anything else. With algebraic types, you can create your own. So you can say, I have enums are one type. So, you know, I have a street light and it can be green, yellow, or red. Um, I also have uh, records. So I have a person and they have a bunch of fields inside, you know, name, age, address, let's say. And then you can pose them together. So a person has an address and address is a type that lives elsewhere. So now I can have functions that work on address and that work on address inside of a person. And we can also do that switching logic, just like, you know, streetlight is red, yellow, or green. We can say, you know, this is an error or an okay case. And that's going to force us to handle both sides of that branch. So in, the way we do that case in Elixir is we, you know, do a tuple with okay and error, and maybe other cases. What a type system does is says, when we're doing this, this case switching, we know how many cases there possibly can be. You're not missing any cases. You have to handle all of your, your edge cases. Um, as a concrete example of that, a few years ago, we were calling out to, to an Erlang library. I'm trying to remember what exactly it did now. But it the documentation said, here's the different 
cases that can come back as tuples. And they had different lengths of tuple and you know a bunch of different things. But there were some undocumented cases that would come back too. So we were having runtime errors in our code. So that wasn't great. So we created a catch-all and then we would discover the, you know, the extra errors over time. So it's, you know, it's it's workaroundable. People often say that having an untyped language is easier to iterate on because you're not having to quote fight with the type system. Um, but it depends on how you use it. So yes, the type system will tell you, no, you can't do that, but it's preventing you from writing a bug. So it's you can also see it as having a conversation with the compiler or a conversation with the type checker and being able to really, again, with this being able to reason about and understand the code that you have in front of you, you can look at the type and say, oh, these are the cases I have to handle. This is the kind of thing I'm going to be dealing with. These are the only kinds of things it can do. It's only able to look at uh, query users. It can't, doesn't have you know, unfettered access to the entire database, right? I know this is restricted to queries. So you get a lot of understanding about, about your program and a lot of reuse because you can also put some abstraction in your types as well and just have uh, variables in there that have to line up. So is there value in untyped languages? I know that there's a couple attempts right now at adding a full type system to Elixir. And people often approach me about it, like, you know, what, what, what do you think about this thing that's happening in this lab over here, right? Like, well, I, I think that's that's great, that's useful. I think there's absolutely space for, for untyped or the other term is unityped languages. But it really, I think it, it's mostly a matter of preference because it's a trade-off. Do you want to do more in tests or do you want to have more of it in proofs? Yeah, I, I sort of have a similar, having much less experience with static typing than you do, certainly. But it's my read on it at this point is that it comes down to a combination of requirements and style preferences. So like if stability is a requirement, static typing might be good if velocity is more of the requirement uh, dynamic typing might be good and it, i always think back to in hackers and painters paul graham's book where he talks a lot about dynamic typing and and how valuable it is to be able to sort of like slap paint against the canvas and not really worry or have any of these concerns and it just seems sort of like a stylistic difference someone who's more deliberate would probably deliberate and discerning someone who's sort of seasoning ideas more might be more interested in like a static type language while someone who's more just like going rogue cowboy coding maybe like me <laughs> would enjoy dynamic typing obviously all the uh, requirements that need to play a role in that as well eric do you have any follow-ups on the static typing question i feel like we could probably talk about this all day <laughs> yeah we probably could but in the interest of time maybe we should move on to our next topic so the end of the last episode we recorded with you, I think in the chatter afterwards, you had mentioned that you had a lot of thoughts on macros. <laughs> so yeah, we just wanted to to kind of open up the space for whatever, like, I guess we can start with what is a macro? Sure. Yeah. So the pithy definition is a macro is code that writes code, which I'm going to revise for the rest of what I'm about to say. It's a function that runs during the compiler pass that says, okay, so we've already broken up your code into some syntax tree, right? So the compiler has to break it down into a particular form that it understands. And it stops at one point and says, okay, are any of the functions in here macros, which means it's going to run now. And one of the things that a macro can take in is source code. So it can take a look at the tree and then modify it. So 
or one of the things I can do is is, is modify this code tree. Um, and so it's very nice for building DSLs, for writing test code, for anything that you don't want to have runtime costs on. So the like a really classic example is logging. Don't run you know this detail of logging in production. So we're going to write a macro that eliminates all of the logging lines for you know at the input level let's say. And now it doesn't even have to do the decision at runtime. We've just created a program that doesn't have those instructions anymore. Or doing things with, say, I'm actually not certain that Ecto schema syntax is a macro, but I believe it is just from kind of the, the high-level syntax. And it's going to generate a whole bunch of other code and helpers and, and things that let you then you know talk to the database. But you have this very nice high-level syntax. So that's what most people use macros for. I always like to say that there's two rules of macro club. Never use macros and never use macros because they're very difficult to debug. They're happening at compile time. How do you even, how do you debug that? And this is, I guess, the, the first insight about macros is that they are compile time functions. They're not things that turn code into code. They're functions that run during the compiler pass. So you can write regular functions, test them on the data structure that you know is coming in, for the AST, for the, the, the syntax tree, and then wrap it in essentially a shell of a macro and run it for real, right? And you know that it'll do the same sort of thing. So you can pull them out that way. The other thing you can do is add all kinds of interesting features to your programming language. So in type class, which is a, a library I wrote to bring in essentially a overloaded, more powerful version of protocols, into Elixir from other languages like Scala, Rust, or Haskell. It checks at compile time that if there's inheritance, because now we have protocols, I can say I depend on these other protocols as well. If there's inheritance, check that this type is actually defined already on that protocol. We give it properties saying, you know, if you have one for doing concatenation, it should follow the property that doing, you know, regardless of the way you place the brackets around things, it'll always end up as the same. So you don't need brackets anywhere. So at compile time, we run all of the prop tests. So we have compile time guarantees. You could write a type system in macros. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. You can put messages in and print to the console how far you've gotten in the compiling steps. You can get more information from about your program while it's compiling. And one of my absolute favorite uses of this is Credo, which uses macros to analyze code as well. So there's a lot you can do with macros beyond build a little DSL, right? And you can make them much more understandable and more testable by pulling them out into regular functions, running your tests on those with the right kind of type of thing which is to say AST, which is a, a triple, a, you know, a tuple with three fields. I want to drill into this a little bit. We have a question here about sort of different levels or kinds of macros, and we have a word, a homo iconic, which I don't, I think Eric might know what that means, but I don't know what that means and, and how it is different from other iconics. So could you, <laughs> could you maybe tell me, could you enlighten me, please? Yeah, sure. So homo iconic, that elixir has this, property means that you can turn it into a lisp. It also means that everything that you have in the main syntax of the program turns into directly into AST, in, into syntax tree. So you can look at your program and say like, oh, okay, this is what the AST will look like roughly. There's nothing sort of, well, you can hide things in macros or in syntax, but it'll always turn into the same 
order and the same writing, right, as what's there. And when the macro is running, you don't do this in some other special syntax. You get regular Elixir to run it against. So the EST is Elixir, regular Elixir syntax. So if you have a function that can ingest tuples, you can work on the EST. So it's just saying that your high-level syntax is just a nice human representation of the AST. So what would a non-homo-iconic macro mean? Does it mean that it makes a language that is not the language that you wrote the macro in? So you can't really write macros if it's not homo-iconic. You can do quasi-quoting and things like that. But yeah, so uh, it means that you can... So this is what Haskell has instead of macros. It means that you can write a string and then provide it a parser and a runner, which is a bunch of extra steps than just having Elixir written in Elixir, right? I love how many words we have for things in computer science. Yes. I'm glad that we have smart people like you who know what they mean. <laughs> we have a question here. Maybe you already answered it, but can you write macros that write macros? I, ooh, I, I don't think I've ever tried. I don't think that you can. You can't invoke a macro in the module that it's been written. It has to get compiled first and then pulled into another place. Is that an Elixir-specific limitation or generally speaking, like as a rule of macros? I mean, I want to speak for all languages. Usually when I've run into them, that's the case. Actually, could you? I mean, actually, you might be able to. You just wouldn't be able to use it right in line. I've never tried. (laughs) This is a hard answer. But def macro is perfectly valid Elixir syntax. I don't see why you couldn't do it. You absolutely almost certainly could. Whether or not that would be valuable, I'm not sure. I would love it if one of our listeners would make an attempt at this and report back to us on Twitter about the outcome. And hopefully if you, it would be even better if you could find a useful reason to do it. Well, Eric, do you have any follow-up questions about the macros? Yeah, I guess before we move on. So I, I've never used it, but I'm aware that C or maybe it's just GCC or whatever, like they have, I think they're just preprocessor macros. Maybe I think it's what they're called, but I just if, I don't know if you know that maybe like what makes them different than say like a list macro. Yeah, so I mean they're using the term in a slightly different way. So I, I'm not a C expert by by any stretch. They have a templating system where you can write essentially a shell outline. Right, shell is not like Bash shell, but you know sort of a a file with holes in it that you can then fill stuff into, almost like a half done source file that you can plug things into, which is not really a macro in the Lisp sense. You know, Haskell has template Haskell and this whole quasi-quoting idea. It's a little bit different from being able to extend your language with the language itself, right? So it almost has this almost recursive nature to the to just to the language, where you have, you know, if you're willing to put in enough effort, you can do almost anything. Elixir has hygienic macros, which means that it can't affect things outside of the block that it's in. There are some tricks <laughs> to get around some of those those cases, but they're really like specific to the sorts of thing you're trying to do. And I would discourage people unless you really have a reason to do that. But yeah, it's a different kind of thing than than uh, than a preprocessor in C. Very well. Brooklyn, we'd like to leave you with the final word. So do you have any plugs, asks for the audience, anything like that you want to shamelessly self-promote now is the time? <laughs> 
a shameless self-promotion, sure. So I work at a company called Fission, where we're trying to make web development tools that make web dev easier, that make it so that you don't need DevOps and to make teams more productive and to give more power to users by letting them own their own data. So anybody's interested in things that, like that, you can check us out at vision.codes. Super duper. And I guess I'll just tack this on since last time you told us, you know, hey, we should talk about macros. Is there anything that we need to talk about in season four? Call your shot now. Things to talk about in season four with me if I, if I were to come back or just in general? Well, either way. Either way. Specifically about you, for sure, because, you know, we're going to have you back on, Lord willing. And, but also, if you have an idea about generally speaking, we'd love to hear that, too. I would love to hear people talk more about application architecture in Elixir, which I think is a lot of people just kind of use, say, Phoenix, and they're just going to follow that. But what if you're not in Phoenix? Or what about the part of your application that isn't the web? Eric has done some innovating there, at least in our organization. Um and uh, we tried to get it included, like, you know how there's a web folder and it's usually labeled like application name underscore web. We really were trying to lobby to get that just shortened to web. <laughs> they didn't want to do it. I don't think they would have accepted a patch any, anyway. So because they just didn't seem like to think it was worth it. But he's done some other things, too. I don't know. It's all domain driven architecture, right? Like that's what that's what you call phoenix architecture that's really helpful and what about you when you come on do you, do you want to talk about architecture or do you have something that's been obsessing you that you would want to talk about in season four so i've been thinking a lot about architecture lately i just gave a keynote in amsterdam on the three-layer architecture and porting that into elixir and essentially how people can can add a protocol quote object-oriented layer a little bit more in elixir to, to get more uh, power and ability there Something that I'm going to mention just almost as, as a teaser, and I'm not entirely certain that this uh, project is going to go forward, but might be interesting to talk about if it does, is, as I mentioned, I'm working in Haskell. Haskell is a fantastic language. It's lovely, but it's 30 years old, and you can feel that it has some opinions that have had to evolve over time. In a lot of ways, it feels like how Erlang and Elixir are related. I would love to see an Elixir for Haskell or an Elixir-like approach. It might not look like Elixir, different trade-offs. So something I've been playing around with is maybe kicking off a project like that, taking a lot of the learnings we have from projects like this and creating a new language. I think you could get a lot of energy behind that if you get it going. Haskell is definitely not the most user-friendly language, so something Elixir-y might be nice. Eric, do you have anything before I uh, close this out here? Uh, I just look forward to seeing and wherever <laughs> that goes. <laughs> Brooklyn, Amazing. thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Brooklyn Zelenka, and my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we are always looking to take on new projects, building web apps and Elixir, Rails, and React. Infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to hit that like button or that subscribe button wherever you are listening. You can you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. Reach out. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know how we could do better. And join us again next week for Elixir Wizards. Elixir Wizards.